So I'm going to do something potentially dumb, something that I've done in the past and it rarely goes well. I want to talk about politics and church. So, uh, yeah, almost every time I've tried to do this and tried to speak spiritual truth into our political landscape, uh, someone ends up getting mad, which should not be surprising in the least. Uh, you know, pretty much any time you try to say anything about anything that might be related to politics, somebody's going to get upset and get mad at you. Um, you look on social media and people will post little lighthearted jokes. That's clearly a joke, not to be taken seriously, meant to produce a chuckle for anyone to see it and to keep on scrolling. And inevitably, there's somebody who dives in the comments and says, oh yeah, and leaves either an angry comment, a condescending comment, something that's snarky, something that shows everyone else that they can't take a joke and that they maybe missed the fact that it was a joke. I don't know. Um, but we live in this incredibly divided time, and I'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, as we go on, um, but if you told me like a few weeks ago, a month ago or so, that there could ever be anything that, anything political that happened that a, a huge majority of people could agree upon, I would have said no. There's, not, there's no way that could ever happen. No, no way anything political could happen that most of the people in our country could agree on. And then the first presidential debate happened. And what was so amazing to me as I um, got on, because I watched like only 10 minutes of it at the beginning, and I was like, I can't do this. It's making me anxious just watching this mess. And so um, that night and the next day, almost everybody, because I follow people kind of all over the political spectrum on various social media platforms, but just about everybody was saying the same thing. Wow, we should probably be ashamed of ourselves. That that's, This is what we've elected. We've brought this on ourselves, and there was some level of um, shame. Whether they were blaming one candidate or the other, everybody knew that it was really, really big, embarrassing Mess, And so that debate became like this rare unicorn that you never see anymore, this thing that, that uh, kind of united a lot more people than what we normally see. And now here we are facing this election two days from now that's sure to be one for the books. And let me tell you something. No matter who wins the election, no matter which candidate you vote for, I think in a lot of ways we've already lost. And when I say we, I mean Christians. Um, and when Christians... Christians lose in the way that we're talking about. When we, when we make the mistake that I think many Christians have made, everybody loses. Not just Christians, but the world loses. And here's the mistake that I think that we've made that has been detrimental for not only how people view Christianity, but how people view Christ. And what's sad about it is that at the beginning of this pandemic, as it started, for the first time in years, you know, the public opinion of Christians and the church started to turn up. It had been going on decline for years and years. People just more and more were, had an unfavorable view of Christians and the church. And as this pandemic and they saw churches reaching out and helping and serving, people started getting a little bit more pleasant opinions about the church. And as we've gotten closer and closer to this nasty election, I think we might have hurt ourselves in this way. And here's what we've done. Here's the mistake I think we've made, one of the mistakes we've made. We've forgotten how to treat our enemies. We've forgotten how to treat our enemies. In the New Testament, Jesus himself has incredibly specific instructions for how Christians are to treat people in general, but in specific, our, our, our neighbors and our enemies. Um, but I feel like a lot of Christians lately, we've tossed this whole how to treat our enemies thing out the window that Jesus has given, and I'm, I'll get into that in a minute. And it feels that more and more Christians, instead of being 
anchored on the word of God, leaning on the word of God, we're leaning on something else to guide us. I think we've been swept up in the narratives by the various political parties. Now, let me be clear. The specifics of what each political party says is very different. But the goals of what the political parties are saying is the same. And their goal is they want to make us feel things. Because when we feel things, we get motivated. If they can get our emotions invested in this, we are more likely to donate, support, publicly endorse a candidate, and ultimately vote for them. And both sides have done an amazing job at making us feel lots of things, but I'm gonna, I want to talk about just two things they've been trying to make us feel that have worked exceedingly well, especially on Christians. The first thing is fear. Oh, they want us to feel scared. And I'll tell you why. Because few things raise money and inspire action like fear. And so all we hear are things like Republicans are going to take away your right to vote. Democrats are going to take away your guns. Republicans are going to destroy the planet. Your kids are going to die painful deaths because of it. Democrats are going to take away your religious freedom in the name of being woke. Republicans are going to take away your health care so that you won't be able to get medical care for your family. And Democrats are going to tax you into the poorhouse. And, and both sides are trying to convince us that if the other side wins, it's going to be the end of the world for us. Or at least to the end of the way of life that we are used to and that we love. It's going to be taken from us. Things like your hobbies, your, your marriage, your belief system. That other side, if they win, they're going to make it illegal for you to even live the life that you want. But for $25 or $100, you can save everything. We just need your support, just need your donation, just need your vote. And oh boy, are we scared. We're so scared. Everybody is so scared about this election. Regardless, everybody's got their different perspective, but it's so much rooted in fear. We talk so much about the anger and the division that exists in our culture, but I think at the root of all that stuff is fear. We're scared of losing something, scared of losing some way of life that we love, and we're told that the other party is going to take that from us. And this fear, we're so scared, has just shown up and, and reared its head as anger because we're scared of something, and so we want to fight to protect it. The second thing they want to make us feel, and this has really been big-time uh, success on Christians, they want to make us feel moral superiority. I've noticed so much of the political messaging anymore and if you listen to even debates, they're just so worthless to listen to because there's very little said about policies, how we're going to fix problems, how, what laws need to be enacted. There's very little of that. I mean, yeah, they too talk about that some, but the majority of what they say is to show us and convince us that they have the moral high ground over their opponent. And the reason they do that is so that whatever candidate you agree with if they can convince you that they have the moral high ground, that they are morally superior, you start to feel morally superior because you agree with them. So certainly, if they have the moral high ground and you like what they're saying, you have the moral high ground. And this is so, so smart because it gets people fired up. Because suddenly, the, the, the discussion is not Democrats and Republicans and Republicans and Democrats. It's good, upstanding, godly people versus those horrible evil, despicable people who are trying to carry out the works of Satan himself. And they can get us so riled up because they've made it a fight of good versus evil. And it convinces us that we have to fight. The, the very existence of goodness rests on the, on the line here, so we have to get up. And again, it's so genius when you want to get people to vote for you, give to you, campaign for you, all that stuff. Now, 
if they can get you to feel morally superior and get you scared that if the other side wins and what they want comes to pass is going to destroy your life, well, then you're ready to fight, and you're ready to fight hard. And I think that's what we're seeing play out. And so what's happened is, for a lot of Democrats, Republicans are no longer people just living their lives with problems and struggles like everybody else. They're boogeymen who need to be feared, fought, and destroyed. And likewise, Republicans, for a lot of Republicans, Democrats aren't just people living their lives with their own fears and struggles and whatnot. They are boogeymen to be feared, fought, and destroyed. And what these two arguments, fear and trying to get you to feel like you're morally superior, what those have done is they cause us to dehumanize our opponents. Because again, they're not people. They're evil. They're evil. They're villains of the story of humanity. And, and so now that we've kind of taken away their, their humanity, and we see them as just this faceless evil, we can go online and we can go talk in person and we can say things that are vulgar, disgusting. We can say things that may or may not be true. We can curse about them. We can share stuff online that's frankly disturbing coming from Christians. We'll share nasty stuff that's crass, inappropriate. We'll say horrible things about any political candidate we don't like, whether it's Trump, Biden, Harris, Hillary, Pelosi, Pence, whoever. And we can cuss somebody out at the grocery store. We can give them the fingers and, and walk away seething simply because of a bumper sticker that they had on their car. And it's gotten so out of hand in certain places that you have people, we've heard stories of this, of people killing other people, wanting to hurt other people simply for the way they vote. And it's one thing when our world gets swept up in all this. It's an entirely different thing when Christians get swept up in all this. Because... We have very clear directives from Scripture and Jesus himself for how we're supposed to live our lives. We're not meant to be led by culture. We're not meant to be driven by our emotions. We're meant to be led by the teachings and the instructions of God himself given to us in the Bible. And specifically, the most amazing picture of God that we've ever gotten, which was Jesus himself. And so we can't, we can't be willing to get caught up in all this stuff. In fact, we're going to look at Jesus' most famous sermon. We're going to, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. And this is Jesus talking about how we treat our enemies, specifically. And it's amazing that he talked about this. And you're going to see the, the, the scripture is, going, is incredibly relevant to what we're going through. When I hear people say, oh, the Bible's old time and outdated, and people need to maybe update it and edit it so that it fits more with our world. They haven't read it. It fits so well with our world. It's amazing. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 43. This is Jesus. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So that's what you hear. Isn't that what we are told? I mean, it's, maybe they don't say it that way, but with all the marketing and messaging, man, that's just kind of how we dive in. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Love those people who are likable and just like you, those people who agree with you, and hate anybody else because they're evil and horrible and wrong. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, meaning what you've been told is wrong, and I'm getting ready to change the rules of the game and change the, the, the framework by which you live your life. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus starts presenting us with what was normal. And what was normal then is what's normal now. Love your neighbors, hate your enemies. What's really interesting is in the first century, that's what the, the religious leaders had been teaching for a good long time, was that you love your neighbor and you hate those who weren't like you. They had kind of misconstrued some Old Testament 
teachings, and they um, took this you know, very prominent teaching that every Jewish person would have known, which was, love your neighbor as yourself. And they said, well, your neighbor, who's your neighbor? It's the person that's just like you, your fellow Jewish citizen, your fellow Israelite. And then they looked at all the various situations where God had um, carried out judgment on various people throughout history. And they said, well, most of the time God did that. It was on those horrible outsiders. So we should love our neighbors, the people who are just like us, and hate everybody else. And so the Jewish people became very not nice for a long time to anybody who wasn't Jewish. In fact, there was a lot of animosity between Jewish people and Gentiles, non-Jewish people, in the Roman Empire. And you don't even need to read the Bible to know that. Like, that's just written about in history, in secular, non-Christian history. People will write, uh, we have recordings and stuff of uh, uh, how, how much the non-Jewish people really didn't like the Jews because they treated people like they were beneath them. They treated them like they were you know, dogs, like they just didn't have humanity, like they were lesser people because they were on the outside and we're the good godly people. They're evil and we're on the right side of things and they're not. And, and Jesus says, the fact that you guys got that from the Old Testament is ridiculous. And so what I'm going to tell you is how you should really treat people, even your enemies. And so he doesn't just say, stop treating them badly. He says, you need to love your enemies Love these people. And in the New Testament, love isn't a feeling. Love is this active process of living in a way that shows love. It's sacrificial. It's serving others. And he says, I want you to look out for the well-being of those people that you don't even like, those people that you consider your enemies. But unfortunately, those people were hating their enemies or hating these people that they considered enemies because they thought that's what God wanted them to do. They said, I'm a good guy, they're a bad guy, so therefore I have to treat them this way, hoping, hoping to ultimately defeat them. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way my kingdom works. That's not the way my followers are going to live. And then he also says, not only should you love them, but you should pray for them. And he didn't mean prayers like, I'm going to pray that you get covid I'm going to pray that a meteor falls out of the sky and just lands straight on your head and squishing you into oblivion. I'm going to pray that lightning strikes you and you turn into a little pile of dust. Like that. No, he says, the prayers that I want you to pray are for their well-being. For these people that are trying to do you harm, I even want you to pray for them. It's such an incredibly high bar to, to try to climb over. But what Jesus wants us to see is that when we do those things, when we love and pray for our enemies. What he's saying, he actually says it, let me go back. What he says is, when you do that, you become sons of your Father in heaven. You become children of God because you are reflecting God. Just like parent, or kids tend to look like their parents and sometimes act like their parents. And so much so they act like their parents that their parents are getting repaid for the way they treated their parents when they were kids. You know how that, that whole thing works, right? Right, so he's, He's saying, when you act like, or when you live this way, you are reflecting the character and nature of God. Because one thing God never does is he never sees us as just the people who have done evil things. And we've all done evil things. We've all done things that are regretful and despicable and horrible. We've all thought thoughts that we'd be ashamed for other people to know about. And yet God sees all of that. And he doesn't just see our evil, he sees us as his children. Yes, broken and flawed, sure, but his children that he loves, that he wants to have a relationship with, people that he wants to have salvation so that we could be with him forever. He never just pulls away 
the, the humanity just to see our evil. And yet that's what our current culture is telling us to do. Forget that these people live lives. Forget that they're moms and dads and kids. Forget that they're worried about this, that, and the other. They're evil. Just look at that and try to just hate them, destroy them. Shake your fist at them. Do whatever you got to do to hate on them more. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not how this is supposed to work, especially from my followers. And so we as Christians, we cannot stand to forget how Jesus calls us to treat our enemies. We can't forget it. it. The stakes are too high because, like I said, we lose because we start drifting away from our Heavenly Father. We start drifting away from following in Jesus' footsteps. But guess what? The world loses when we forget how we're supposed to treat our enemies because if we stop living the way Jesus wants us to live, if we stop following in his footsteps, if we stop shining his light to the world, who else is going to do that? Who else, who are the people that God says to shine his light into the world? Who are the people that, that God put on this earth to be his real physical presence of love and grace and mercy? It's us. And if we abandon that, where are people going to see about the message, see the message of Jesus, hear about Jesus, and believe in him if it's not coming from us? And so if we stop being living examples of Jesus' grace and mercy and hope and forgiveness, how are people going to see and believe in him how are they going to be saved by him and jesus says something along these lines earlier in in the same sermon so matthew chapter 5 i'm just about 30 verses earlier in, in um, 5 13 he says you are the salt of the earth but if salt loses its taste how shall its saltiness be restored it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet now that statement if you don't know much about the Bible, and you kind of think at the think and look at the world uh, from a perspective of people who grew up with refrigerators and freezers, right? I have a whole we got a quarter cow in our deep freeze in our garage, and we don't have to worry about it going bad, right? Um, but in that world, these people grew up where if something wasn't preserved, it drifted toward rottenness, like anything does. If you've ever you know left a banana in a fruit bowl out of sight a little too long, and you come back and it's not a banana, but it somehow turned into this blackened banana pudding inside a little nasty thing, right? Like, that's just what stuff does. It drifts toward rottenness. And, and the point Jesus is making is mankind without God's influence naturally drifts toward evil, brokenness, rottenness, being more putrid and nasty. And then you bring salt into the equation. Salt was this amazing preservative. When, when something like meat was coated in salt, soaked in salt, it made a bad environment for these bacteria and things to get in there and make it rancid and gross. It preserved. It protected. And, and Christians are meant to have a similar function in the world. That as the world is drifting towards corruption and evil, that we walk in a different path. We show something different to our world than just doing what feels good, doing what your emotions say to do, following whatever your angry, angry you know, pride says to do in a particular day. The, the, we show a different way to live, a drastically different way to live. That is the point. And if we lose that, if we stop being beacons of God's love and purpose and mercy in our world and forgiveness and grace... What purpose do we have anymore? If we're just trying to be people who are protecting ourselves, doing our own little thing, and hating anyone that's different than us, we've lost our purpose. We've stopped being the salt to the earth. And he says, what's the purpose of salt that doesn't, it's not salty anymore. It's like, just throw it out on the street. It's dirt. It, it has no good. 
Let the people walk on it. Let horses walk on it. It doesn't matter anymore. And then he gives one more example, which is a little more clear to us, and I've kind of hinted at it. He says, you are the light of the world, a light in a dark place. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but we put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Meaning that people will judge God, form their picture of God based on how we live. And they will think that God is angry and judgmental and irrelevant if that's how we act. Or they might get a glimpse that God is more forgiving and gracious and kind than than they ever thought possible, depending on how we live our lives. We are meant to shine in the dark world. And the darker it is, the brighter the light tends to appear. Last night we, you know, we walked, started trick-or-treating, it was daylight. We lit our jack-o'-lanterns on our step, couldn't tell that they were lit even a little bit. We go walk around town, it gets dark, we come back, in our, walking up our driveway, and man, you can see the perfect faces of every one of those jack-o'-lanterns because the, the darker it got, the brighter that light shined. And that's what we are supposed to be. As our world is dark, we don't get darker with it. As our world gets dim, we shine brighter to show more example of God's love in our world. And so in this season, we can't stand to be led astray by any other message, be led astray by anything that plays on our fear or our pride uh, that wants us to feel that we're morally superior than, than other people. We can't be led away by political marketing more than we are led by the word of God and the example set before us of Jesus. Even if we are standing in a world that, that we feel is evil, and maybe even a world that God would say is evil, you don't fight evil with more evil. You don't fight hate with more hate. That's not how God set things to work, and that's what Jesus wanted to show. You don't hate your enemy, you love them. Because the Jews tried hating their enemies, and all it did was make the enemies hate them more. It didn't make anybody want to become Jewish or hop on the Israelite uh, belief system. So we are called to be different. So whatever's happening in our world, we're called to be different. As angry as it gets out there, we're called to be different. As hate-filled as it gets out there, we're called to be different. We are, we are called to stand opposite the evil, to shine a light into the darkness. And so we are called to love our enemies. And is that going to be hard? Oh, yeah, it's going to be hard. Because that, that, that emotion that gets stirred up in us, man, they do such a good job. I feel it. I feel it. I kind of, there's times where I just have to step away because I feel myself getting too angry, and it's like, that's not, that's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to look at people who are different with love and compassion, not anger and rage. And so we are called to love our enemies, serve people we don't like, and even pray for those who mistreat and persecute us. And as we follow Jesus, we seek to overcome evil with good. And that's never been out of date. It's never been out of touch, and that's never been more important than for us right now in this moment of history when everything in our world is so defined by anger and rage and destroying the people on the other side of the aisle. That's not the perspective of the followers of Jesus. We overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to have a different calling, to have a different, even more difficult standard for how we should live. And I know that 
it's easy for us to <clears throat> get into a situation like, like the one we find ourselves in in the world where we do feel like, I know a lot of people feel like we are on the opposite side of what's evil and wrong. And, and we could ask a lot of questions. Well, then how do we fight evil? How do we stand up to injustice? We could ask so many questions, but, but before we even ask those questions, we've got to stop and, and spend some significant time absorbing, digesting this statement that we are to love our enemies because it's so easy for us to say, I'll love my enemy until, I'll love my enemy except, I'll love my enemy if, but that's not how you said it. You just said love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And I pray that we would be people who, before we start trying to come up with exception clauses and get out of jail free cards for why this doesn't apply to us, but we would first and foremost be people who, who are determined to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We have no greater picture of you, Father, than, than your son. And he showed us how to live, and he showed us how to treat people, and he showed us how to be kind and loving and, and gracious to people that everyone else had written off. He showed us how to respond with grace in the face of anger. He showed us so many ways to live that are better and more fruitful. And I pray that we would not throw that away to just walk the same road as everyone else, to walk the road of the world, the, world, the road of our culture. So help us, Father, as we, as we try to be different, as we try to be salt to the, to the earth and light into a dark world. And as things get crazy, um, I pray that we would st find ourselves standing on the solid ground of, of, of your teaching. Because as you know, the messages of our world shift and the situation in our world shifts and moves, you're always stable, and our calling in you is secure. So help us, Father, help us to love our enemies, love our neighbors, pray for those who persecute us, pray for those who want to do us harm, and to, to seek on you and the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we respond to a world that, that we don't always like and it is very different um, from the one we would maybe paint if we had the, the ability to choose the world we lived in. Well, we thank you, though, for this high calling and the purpose you've given us to be salt in the world. I just pray that we don't lose our saltiness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.